Welcome to Truth Matters Church, contending for the faith one verse at a time. We're a few months into our expository study of Revelation, and as we study Jesus' letters to the seven churches found in chapter 2, today we look at Smyrna, the crown city, and get some important historical background which helps us better interpret the scriptures. Leading our study, here is Pastor Alex Cataroja. We will continue our study in the book of Revelation. And we are at this point in the text into the second letter of the seven churches. And that is to the church in Smyrna. And the title of our message is The Crown City, which is Smyrna. So just like for us in today's world, Las Vegas is Sin City. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Well, Smyrna, in its biblical and historical context, had a nickname, many nicknames. And one of those nicknames was the Crown City. And we'll talk a little bit more about what may have been behind that. And as a way of reminder of the setting of our text, John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, And we'll talk a little bit more about the historical background that got him there. And in this map, you'll see this is kind of a a map that's of the Mediterranean Sea. And from our our Daniel study and his vision of the four beasts arising from the Great Sea or the Rab Yam was the Mediterranean Sea. And what's just kind of interesting for me is as we're studying the book of Revelation, and remember we went through our Daniel series there is this parallel that Daniel in his vision sees four great beasts rising from the Rab Yam or the Mediterranean Sea. And coincidentally, these seven churches are on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So all that is to say is there is an implication or an intersection, at least where the geographic location is of these seven churches and Daniel's vision. And as we continue in our study, if it becomes obvious to us that there is that parallel in Daniel's vision, I'll try my best to explain it. But for now, I'm just calling that out, that this is the setting. It is on the Rab Yam, or the the Great Sea, or the Mediterranean Sea. And here in this map, you can kind of see where Patmos is off the coast there. And it's fairly close, according to this map, of where the seven churches are in this book. So let's look at a, or let's take a brief look into the church in Smyrna. So Smyrna, or the city of Smyrna, if you were to do a word search and type in Smyrna, Smyrna is only mentioned in the book of Revelation. And if you're wondering where is Smyrna today, it's in the Turkish city called Izmir. So Smyrna, if you're trying to say, okay, well, if it's not mentioned, you know, specifically, or at least that city or town, what was the region? And that region, I'm going to go back to the map, is Asia Minor. You see Asia Minor there? So all of these seven churches are part of the region of Asia Minor. And if you were to go further east, northeast, you get into the, re- the region of Galatia. So like, for example, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the churches in Galatia, it is in the region of Galatia. There wasn't a city of Galatia. It was a region. So Asia Minor was a region. And within that region in Asia Minor, Smyrna 
was one of those cities and, and the rest of the seven churches. And what we you know, are trying to do is when we're trying to understand kind of the letters to these churches, it's always good to try to find out how did it start. And although it's not clearly, I mean, it's not at least clear for me, using just the scripture alone on who's responsible in establishing, let's say, the church in Smyrna, in which the angel who's assigned over that church and to the believers there, who's, who founded it? Well, you can be dogmatic, at least for me. Um, but what I did find is there are four kind of good possibilities. The church in Smyrna could have been founded by the preaching of the Apostle Peter. The church could have been founded by the Apostle Paul. The church could have been founded by John, who penned this letter to them. Or believers could have just scattered and settled there due to persecution and somehow found each other and started a community and began to meet. So let's kind of look at these different options to see these possibilities. So one possibility, again, is the church in Smyrna could have been founded by the preaching of the Apostle Peter. And for that, I do want to reference Acts 2, uh, verses 5 through 11. And the context here is the very familiar and popular passage to many of us. It was that Pentecost that year, AD 30, when the Lord died, rose, and ascended. So that following feast of Pentecost is when this picks up. And we'll pick up in verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speaking in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Eliamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, and that's Asia Minor, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and Greeks and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So in, in this passage, that Pentecost, when the believers and the apostles were commanded by Jesus to wait there for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit made an appearance. He could have been, he was heard. It was a loud sound, a loud rushing wind. Everyone heard it. Everyone in Jerusalem, it was so loud. And then the Holy Spirit manifested himself as tongues as a fire and began to distribute himself amongst the believers there. And then as the Jews, because it's, it's the feast, so they all, they're from all the neighboring areas, and they all come to Jerusalem for this appointed feast, they started hearing the believers there speaking in languages of every kind, and that each and every one of them heard them speak in their native tongue. But one of them was from the area of Asia Minor. So it's possible that as Peter preached that great sermon following you know, the, the Pentecost account and the Holy Spirit appearing and the believers speaking in languages, that some of those from Asia Minor were part of the, what, two or 3,000 Jews that were saved and then went back to Smyrna. So Peter could have been responsible, the preaching of Peter could have been responsible for the believers in the church in Smyrna. 
Let's look at another possibility. Smyrna could have been founded by the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Now, during Paul's third missionary journey, he stayed at Ephesus for over two years. And I want to read a couple of passages from Acts of that stay. I want to read Acts 19, verse 10. This, referring to reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius, took place for two years in Ephesus so that all who lived in Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And I also want to stay in the same chapter, but go down to verse 26 when there was a riot in Ephesus because of Paul's preaching. Um, Here is what the riot was about. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but also, but in almost all of Asia Minor, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that God's made with hands are no God's at all. And we've covered, kind of at least, or we at least mentioned this riot and this account in our study into the letter of, to the church in Ephesus. Remember there was the great Artemis of the Ephesians? And Paul's preaching of the gospel is pretty much going against that, saying, well, there's only one God, right? And there's only one Lord, you know, one faith, one baptism. And Paul's preaching of the gospel created an uproar in while he was uh, in his stay in Ephesus that, you know, the, the people there, the, the silversmiths, they were losing business because people were converting to Christianity and no longer need to buy their little idols. So they were putting kind of these business, these, these uh, silversmiths out of business. But what I want to point out here is in the Acts 19 verse 26, when the people were in uproar and saying, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia Minor, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. So if you were to look or if you were to um, you know, try to approximate how far was Ephesus and Smyrna, it's about 35 to 40 miles apart. Um, so to kind of put it in kind of similar geographic terms, if Let's say this is Ephesus. We're in Ephesus right now. Sacramento would be Smyrna. So it's possible that while Paul was here preaching the gospel, you could have been from Sacramento. And you went back to Sacramento, and that's how the church was founded. Again, what we're doing now is, we're, before we're even opening this letter to the church or the believers in Smyrna, we're trying to understand how did they start like how, how do they begin? We're trying to find out as much as we can from the Scripture and then go to the history. And you know, hopefully when we open up the letter, it starts to open up as well. So the preaching of the Apostle Paul could have also been responsible for the church there. Now let's look at another option, the Apostle John himself. I think it's logical that if John wrote to them, there's a, there's a good chance that he founded them. Although... You can say um, Peter, James, and John, at least the, the main pillars of the apostles, you know, pr- their primary focus in ministry was in Jerusalem. But that being said, it's possible that they, through the persecution, may have scattered and could have been responsible for the establishment of the church in Smyrna. But I do want to call out, and this is just kind of me just doing, doing the diligence it is possible for Paul to, be, to have established the church in Smyrna and John, let's say, helped shepherd or helped supplement, but it can't be the other way around. Uh, I do want to read 
uh, Romans 15, 20, and Paul speaking there, he writes there, and thus I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Meaning, of these seven letters, we know Paul founded or was, you can say, we know that there were other laborers in Ephesus from our past studies, but Paul was definitely involved in the establishment of the church in Ephesus. So if Paul established, let's say, the church in Ephesus, then we know that John didn't establish the church in Ephesus. But if John established Smyrna, then we can eliminate the Apostle Paul as a church planner because Paul, when he's bringing the gospel and he's going on all of these missionary journeys, if Smyrna was started by John or Peter, Paul's not going to go there. He's going to go to other places where the gospel hasn't been preached because he doesn't want to build on another man's foundation. So I just want to kind of call out that kind of nuance there that Paul, Paul could have started Smyrna and then John helped, but it couldn't be the other way around. If John started Smyrna, then Paul would have went elsewhere and brought the gospel and he would visit those churches to make sure that they're doing okay. That was under his kind of care and watch. Does it make sense? Okay. Now let's look at, this is the last possibility. Just using the scripture, who started Smyrna? These are the eligible kind of candidates. Well, here's another possibility. Believers may have scattered and settled there due to persecution. And in the very opening of 1 Peter, we'll look at verses 1 and 2, mentions this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered, where? Throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, or Asia Minor, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And if you were to you know, try to kind of pinpoint, when was First Peter written? It was believed to be written, let's say around the early 60s AD, around 62 or 63 AD. And Nero was the Roman emperor at that time. Nero reigned from 54 to 68 AD. So I want to talk a little bit about this because Peter says, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Who is Peter writing to? He's writing to the believers who were scattered in all of these different areas. Why were they scattered? Because Nero was persecuting the church. So I want to look a little bit, I just want, or at least I want to discuss briefly the persecution under Nero, the persecution of Christians, because this is what Peter, this is who was affected, who was under that persecution, and Peter is writing to them, First Peter. The Nero persecution, how did it begin? And this is, you know, fairly, I would say, widely accepted from historians. But in the summer of 64 AD, back then, there was a great fire in Rome that burned for about a week, and it devastated about three-fourths of the city. Now, I think for those of us in California, a week's actually, I mean, in history, it's not even in the top probably 10, right? But back then, it was a big deal. So out of their 14 regions or districts, only four survived. So there was a great fire back then. 75% of the city, devastated. So what do you think, how do you think the people are going to feel? 
the citizens of Rome. They're upset. Who's responsible for burning about 75% of our cities and regions and districts? What do we do here in the United States when something goes wrong? You blame the president. Well, there's no different, I guess. You know who they blamed? Narrow. And what, you know what happened? There were rumors that swirled. Oh, you know what? Nero was responsible because he's conspiring to do X, Y, and Z. Does this kind of sound familiar? When something goes wrong, hey, what's your motive? Right? There's kind of rumors swirling. Well, it's funny how pretty much it's the same thing, but just kind of different people in different times. But anyhow, you know what Nero did when they're blaming Nero? Or what does the president do when you blame the president? You blame someone else, right? Oh, right now. If you blame the president for gas prices, do you think he's going to be like, yeah, it's my fault? He'll be like, nope, it's Russia. It's Ukraine, right? Hey, look at these, look at these, rising, guys for, look at these rising prices. Look at inflation, the price of food, everything. It's anyone but me, right? It's not different. You know what Nero did? Oh, there's this fire. The 75% of the city is devastated. You know what he did? He pointed to Christians. So who became the focus and the heat of persecution now? Oh, the Christians did this? public enemy number one. That's kind of the beginning of the narrow persecution. So consequently, Nero's like, yeah, it's the Christians. He gave an order and he says, go ahead and arrest Christians. And if they're convicted, we're going to torture them and we're going to put them to death for burning our cities. And a Roman historian, Tacitus, he wrote concerning this. And remember I mentioned earlier, I want to go straight to citations and I'll try to integrate it throughout our study. But here is an excerpt from this Roman historian about this persecution under Nero. And I quote, But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called, and they used to call them, they didn't even know what they're called, Christians, Christians. That's not a typo. By the populace. I guess Christianity still was kind of becoming known. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate and most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment and again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and became popular. But here's the portion of this excerpt that I want us to kind of really focus on. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, but as of hatred against mankind. Let me pause and see it another way. This narrow persecution, not only was narrow blaming Christians for the fire, but they're now blaming Christians as hating mankind. So being, if you're a Christian and you're a, a follower of Christ, they're saying you hate people. It's kind of, like, kind of like in our world today, isn't it? If you have a conservative view, if you're a you know, Christian worldview, your beliefs could be, the narrative on you could be, oh, you are narrow-minded, you're not open and inclusive, you hate people. Same thing. But let me finish the last part of this excerpt. Mockery of every sort 
was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. So the Christians who ended up getting arrested and convicted, they were convicted, if not, let's let's just say it's not even for the fire, but for hating mankind. They put animal skins on them and pretty much gave them to the dogs to be killed by beasts. They were even nailed to crosses or they were even fired. Uh, They were even lit on fire because, you know, instead of wood to light up the nights, they would take Christians and burn them to light up the cities. The narrow persecution was a pretty severe dark time in Christianity, right? I mean, this is right when Christianity was pretty much born. Shortly thereafter, they've experienced a lot. And this is just reporting on that. So not only did Nero charge Christians with the arson, but hating mankind. So consequently, Christians, if they were arrested and convicted, as I mentioned, they were covered with skins of wild beasts. They were torn to death by, by dogs. They were nailed to crosses. They were set on fire as light for the city. And um, do I even need to say this? Nero was pretty ruthless, wasn't he? He's a pretty ruthless dude. And the Christians were on the other end of that brutality. So because of the great fire and narrow blaming Christianity, if you were wondering, you know, the apostles were martyred. Except, as history tells us, the apostle John, he died as an old age. But if you were wondering, who was the Roman emperor when Paul was beheaded? And we'll, we'll read an excerpt of that a little later. When Peter was crucified, and some legend says that it's upside down, who was in power when Paul wrote his last letter to Timothy? And he's about to get his head cut off. That's part of the narrow persecution. When Peter was crucified, that was part of the narrow persecution. So you can even say when Peter wrote First Peter, he was also writing to himself because he also needed to be encouraged. Now, let's look more about the city and the characteristics of Smyrna. So Smyrna, it was known for one of the finest seaports in its day. And if you were to go back and look at the map, it was the closest seaport to what we know today as Europe. So from a geographic standpoint, Smyrna was an important city in its day. And historians, when you were to read kind of history books and learn about Smyrna, it is written in a positive light. It was a good place to be back in that time. It was known for beauty and architecture, it had gorgeous flowers, tropical climate, and in fact... It had a coin and had a motto on it called the Flower of Asia. So it had a reputation of being first in size and beauty. So out of the seven churches, you know, off the coast there on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, Smyrna, you know, if you're going to go to one of them, that would probably be on the top of that list. And as far as its population, it was about 100,000. Many Jews lived there. Um, as I mentioned, it had many nicknames. The Crown City, which is the title of our study, was also called the Crown of Asia Minor. And during the Roman period, Smyrna had impers- uh, impressive architecture that circled what was known as Mount Pegasus, like a crown. So if you were to go there back in that day, there was this Mount Pegasus, and it had architecture um, that pretty much resembled a crown. And it's because of these nicknames, something to keep in mind 
when we get to the text, when Jesus makes the crown of life kind of promise, you know, he who perseveres, you will have the crown of life. It's very relevant to the recipients of this letter. So as we're studying the letters, that is to say, whatever is characteristic of that town, of that culture, and Jesus would go off of that too, to bring light, to reveal his promises, to reveal his will and our reward. Uh, So when he says crown of life, like out of all the seven churches, why did he put it to Smyrna? Because Smyrna had, that was part of one of its nicknames among other characteristics. As we continue to look into the church in Smyrna, and if you were to just kind of see, you know, who are some famous figures that came out of there? Um, Some of you might have heard of Homer. He was a Greek poet. And he was really ancient. We're talking about born around 850 B.C. But if you hear Homer or Greek poet Homer, he's from Smyrna. And I shared this in, our, in our, the first time we tried to go through this. But during the Roman period, when Rome was in power in this early first century, there were shrines everywhere and temples everywhere. And there were many shrines and temples erected. There was even one to Homer, as I mentioned earlier, but there were also temples to Zeus, to Cybele, to Aphrodite, to Dionysus, and Roman emperors. So back then, if uh, whoever is the Roman emperor and wanted a statue of himself because they considered themselves as a god, the cities that wanted to do it kind of had to bid for it. It's kind of like the Olympics today. If, uh, if, uh, if a city or a country wants to host the Olympics, you have to go through some sort of vetting process, kind of put, you know, put your indications of interest. There's a selection process, and then whoever gets selected, okay, you're going to host the Olympics. It's kind of like that. If the, one of the Roman emperors is saying, okay, well, I am a god, or you know, the god of gods, and I want a statue of me, who's, you know, you have to kind of put your bid. Well, Smyrna won at least some of them. It competed and won the honor to build a temple to Tiberius, and this is in 26 AD. So in Jesus' day, a temple was built to Tiberius, who was Caesar at that time, and Smyrna was awarded to build a temple and a statue of Tiberius. Uh, in the second century AD, it, won, uh, it was awarded, I guess you can say, the honor to build a temple to the Roman emperor Hadrian. So in 26 AD, they built one for Tiberius. And then in the second century, so this is after 100 AD, they, they built another temple to another Roman emperor, and this was Hadrian. Do you guys like history yet? <laughs> but now, if you exposit the scripture, guess what? The scripture is an ancient history book that's infallible. And it's not only infallible, but within it, has, you know, it's, it is the Word of God, but the Word of God is given in its historical and history and its context. So I know for some of us, this might be a little hard, but just try to stay with it. History is important, especially if we want to get into serious Bible study. We're, we have no choice but to at least have some, you know, history background. So we're continuing to look into the church in Smyrna. At around 600 BC, so right around the time of Babylonian captivity, Smyrna was conquered by a Lydian king named Attalus. And in 600 BC, when this Lydian king Attalus devastated Smyrna, 
So what happened was Smyrna was thriving up to that point, and then after Attalus devastated it, it lost its prominence as a you know, major city or town in, in its day. And I mean, there were still people who are from Smyrna and are from there, but they're, because they were devastated, they just lost that prominence. It was pretty much a village after Attalus devastated it at around 600 BC. So what's, what's also interesting as we're you know, studying Smyrna, so it was prominent in one day, Attalus, this, Lydia, this Lydian king, de- devastates it. But then what happened was when Alexander the Great rose to power and began his conquests, it, con- it conceived in Alexander the Great's mind. He knew about Smyrna. He knew about its rich history. He's like, you know what? I, wanna, I want Smyrna to be rebuilt again. And according to historian Strabo, Although this was the desire of Alexander the Great, it wasn't carried out by Alexander the Great, but it was his vision to restore Smyrna to its former glory. It was done after Alexander died under Antigonus, who lived from 316 to 301 BC, and Lysimachus, who lived from 301 to 281 BC. So Alexander the Great wanted to restore it. Then the men that followed him carried it through. And Smyrna was restored to its former glory. So the city, if you were to look, so for a city to be prominent, devastated, and now prominent again because Alexander the Great conceived it in his heart, the city, from its history, it was literally raised from, it was dead and that was raised to life, historically speaking. It's quite possible, if not probable, that Jesus may have picked up on this theme, and that's why he referred to himself as the one who was dead, just like Smyrna was dead. Hey, I was dead, and I have come to life, just like you came to life, Smyrna. I came to life in the very first verse of this letter. But what Smyrna may be most known for, it did have commodities, and one of them was the commodity of myrrh. So in its day, it was the largest exporter and importer of myrrh. And if you recall, you know, myrrh, it was one of the gifts that were brought by the wise men when Jesus was born. Myrrh was among the commodities. And if you were to look at, you know, how did Smyrna kind of, how did it get its name? You know, some history does suggest that it derived its name Smyrna from myrrh, you know, Smyrna. But you know what, I, I couldn't quite just say, you know, that's exactly how it got its name, although, you know, that, that would be a possibility. But there are other some, like, histories or legend, legends that tell us that Smyrna may in fact have gotten its name from a myth of an Amazon queen named Smyrna. So in other words, there are some other history out there and some legends that say... Smyrna got its name from this Amazon queen named Smyrna. But as far as myrrh goes, um, it, was, it had its value, and it wasn't only valued for its fragrance, but myrrh was an essential commodity or an ingredient when it comes to burial. So when they were to embalm a body back then, myrrh was an important ingredient for that embalming process. And lastly... You know, if you were to look at the letters to the seven churches, did you know only two got only praise and no condemnation? Five 
Some got some praise, some condemnation, some no praise, no commendation. Condemnation. But Smyrna, they're one of the two churches where when Jesus stood among the lampstands, and one of those lampstands was representative to the church in Smyrna, Jesus found nothing but commendation. So that's, Smyrna is a good church. Smyrna was a faithful church. They were an enduring church. They were in a persevering church. You want to be like that. And the other church that received only commendation and no condemnation was Philadelphia. With that, are we ready to open up the text? But hopefully some of that historical background about Smyrna, about the persecution, about its characteristics, just really it's, it's, it's rich in history. Hopefully all that would be helpful for us when now we're going to read this letter to the believers, or first to the angel over the believers in Smyrna. And um, what we're also going to do, and we're not going to do this today because I don't think we're going to have enough time. So with that, let's go ahead and begin our scripture reading, the main course. Let's now read the letter to Smyrna. We'll pick it up in chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the, of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So let's begin to now exposit our text for today. And let's look at the first half of verse 8. Remember, Jesus is being quoted here. He's given the instruction to John. Right therefore... So pretty much from when John is writing here the letters to the seven churches, he is practically dictating. That's pretty much what John is doing here. He's just now, Jesus is telling him exactly what to write, and John is writing. So Jesus is being directly quoted here. So let, let's look at, look at what he said first in the first half of verse 8. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Oh, did I write Ephesus here? To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? So it's to the angel of the church in Smyrna. It's to, be, uh, it's to the angel or agalos, and it's to be understood as an angel, not a human being. And we've covered this, and I'll mention this throughout. There was an angel appointed over each of the seven churches and its city. So the church in Ephesus had one angel, assigned to it. The church in Smyrna had another angel assigned to it, and so forth. So there were seven churches, seven letters, and this letter was directly written. It's interesting. This is the only time, really, in in Scripture that the letter is written to an angel, like, directly. Like, when you read the the letters of the New, um, read the New Testament, it's not written to angels, it's written to people, or to churches, right? The Apostle Paul to the believers in Ephesus, right? To the believers in Thessalonica. When he wrote to Timothy, he wrote to Titus, 
You know, Peter wrote to the believers scattered and so forth. The, the, the New Testament epistles are written to people. But what's interesting here is kind of a, and this is what makes another thing that makes Revelation unique, is that the letters to the seven churches are addressed to the angel of that church. So it's written to the angel and it's written to the believers in that church. So I just want to make sure that we don't lose focus on that because what I'm finding is, um, I think oftentimes in commentaries, the fact that it's written, written to an angel, it's like, yes, it's to the angel of the church, and then they don't even talk about the angel. They just go straight to the message. Well, this was written to an angel. Let's continue on. The, the second part of verse 8, Jesus says, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. So the first and last is the protos eschatos, which means the chief beginning and the chief ending. So another way to say it is, as far as the beginning you can go, and as far as the end you can go, the chief beginning and the chief end is the protos eschatos, the preeminent one. Jesus is applying this designation to himself. And we covered this phrase back in Revelation 1, verse 17, in our glorified Son of Man study, part two. So I want to kind of ask you guys a question. Do you remember what the first and the last means in the Old Testament? Do you remember? So this title, so Jesus is calling himself the protos, protos eschatos. He's saying he's the first and the last. Very good. It was one of the titles of the Father. Yes. And it's associated with something. Do you remember what that was? When we hear, oh, Jesus is the first and the last. He's the protos eschatos. We might say, oh, he's the alpha and the omega, and that's it. Let's move on. It's another way to say, oh, Alpha, Omega, first and the last, saying same thing, let's move on. But there's more to it. It has a very specific designation. And let me re-show this to us. If you go to Isaiah 44, and we'll pick it up in verse 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Remember when you, um, in, ver- in verse 6, you see LORD there is in all caps. Who is that? Remember? The Father. Right. So the Father is the King of Israel and His Redeemer. And the Father is saying, I am the first and the last. Verbatim to Revelation 1.17. And He goes on to say, There is no God besides Me. Who is like Me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let Him recount it to Me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Who's the ancient nation? Who? He said He established an ancient nation. Who's the ancient nation? Israel. Israel. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Now, in Isaiah, Yahweh, the Father, says, I am the first and the last. I am the King and Redeemer of Israel. Jesus is saying, I am the first and the last. I am the King and Redeemer of Israel. Whose title was it in the Old Testament? The Father. What did the Father, when He granted all authority in all in heaven and on earth, and all His titles and names he gave it to Jesus. So Jesus, too, is the first and the last. He is the protos, eschatos, like his father. Like Jesus and like his father, there is no other God but the God of Israel. The scriptures declare that there is only one God, and that is the God of the ancient people, Israel. That's what the scriptures declare. And the fact that that ancient nation is still around 
is proof that He is the first and the last. That He is the King and Redeemer of His people Israel. You want proof that the God of Israel is truly the only God? That ancient nation. We're talking, what, 4,000 years or so from the call of Abram? They're still here. But go back to the Old Testament and look at the Hittites, the Jebusites, whatever. Any tights. Moabites. Where are they? There is no other God but the God of Israel, and the fact that they're still around is proof that He is the first and the last, and their King, and their Redeemer. And Jesus is bearing the same name and the same title of His Father and is attributing this great authority and honor of Lord of creation to Himself. It's kind of like saying like this. It's kind of like the Father's at the top. We got that right from this study. The Father is the Father. And Jesus is saying, that's my Daddy. And He's given me all His authority. Except the Father will never put Himself under the Son. But everything else He gives to me. So Jesus is bearing all the names of his father, and one of them is the first and the last, the king, the the God, the only God, the true God, the king and redeemer of Israel. Now let's look in the last part of verse 8. Jesus says, he was dead and has come to life. Now he says this, and that's pretty self-explanatory. The very same Jesus who was crucified, died and was buried, is the same Jesus who rose from the dead and came out of the tomb and the one speaking in this very vision. So Yeshua, born in Bethlehem, whose mother was Mary, and his earthly father was Joseph, that Jesus recorded in the Scripture, the one we are reading and studying and giving our life to, that very Jesus is the one who lived, died, was buried, and rose. He is the one who is speaking to John in this vision. He was dead and has come to life, says this. And I mentioned in our intro, it could have also been a play on words because Smyrna's reputation as a city that was dead at around 600 BC when it was devastated by Attalus, but it was brought back at around 4th century BC, and it could have played a part in Jesus choosing to identify himself in this way. Because Jesus has many titles. He has many descriptions that he can you, you know, lend from, that his father gave him and granted him authority. And he decided to use this one here, and it could be very well because of Smyrna's history as being one that was dead and has come to life. Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. We deeply appreciate you downloading this message. Persecution is something that none of us want to face, but many of our brothers and sisters in the faith have suffered under it in the past and even today. And while we live with the freedom to worship God openly, we must remember to pray for those that do not and ask God to give them the strength they need to stand firm in their faith. And we should also prepare our own hearts to suffer for Christ, as someday we too could be joining those who do. If you've missed any part of our study, you can find all of them on our website, truthmatterschurch.org. That's truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.